to the book of John, chapter 4, the Gospel of John. Now, don't anyone panic. I know it's Sunday night and not Sunday morning, and I'm supposed to preach from the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings. But as I say, don't worry, I'm a professional. I know exactly what I'm doing here. Um, I'm going to preach from a little bit from John chapter 4 tonight. And really, this is the starting place for the subject this evening of Do You Know How to Worship? And uh, perhaps a better title for the message is Do You Know How to Worship God in the Right Way? And most of you probably think that that's sort of a moot question. I mean, after all, we're all here tonight. We come and do this every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. So surely we know how to worship God in the right way. I mean, just by virtue of the fact that we're here, we must know how to worship. You know, it kind of reminds me of the uh, two atheists that were flying a private plane when the engine stopped running. And uh, they figured right about then they needed to turn to God. And so they said, I think what we need to do is we need to pray. And so they started, but one of them stopped and said, well, I don't really know how to pray. And the other atheist said, well, it's all right. I live right next door to a Catholic church. I hear them praying all the time. And so he said loudly, B4, C13, B17. (laughs) Well, as a child of God, we know that we're supposed to worship. I mean, worship is an integral part of of our lives as Christians and of course, we know that worship is emphasized over and over again in the Scripture. I mean, we can go back to the very beginning of the Word of God in the book of Genesis, and we find right there that God was already teaching man from the very beginning that he needed to worship. God created the world in six days. The Bible says on the seventh day he rested. And God was showing man right then that time needs to be reserved for worshiping the Lord. Now, in our text here in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. I'm not going to go into that whole story tonight, but these two, Jesus and the woman, were having a discussion about worship. So if you'd stand with me, please, we're going to look at a few verses here in John chapter 4, beginning with verse number 19. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Of course, she's speaking to Jesus. And she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word tonight. And Lord, I just pray that you'd open our hearts as we think about worship. Teach us something here that we might learn how to worship you in the right way. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's apparent in just those few scriptures that we read that Jesus and the Samaritan woman had different ideas about worship. Now, although this woman at the well uh, was not worshiping God in the right way, she wasn't worshiping God properly. I mean, she wasn't even saved yet. Yet she did understand very clearly that it is proper for us to worship God. Worship is, is so ingrained into our moral character that we know... We have a sense, and we know this, that we need to worship God. I mean, even the heathens in the darkest parts of the jungles of the world know that they're supposed to worship God. Men that have never met the true God still have this innate sense that we're supposed to worship. 
When Paul was writing to the Romans, he explained to them how that the whole world is guilty before God. And as he was writing there, he had something to say about worship and how men know how to worship, and yet they worship God in the wrong way. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. And I know this is a scripture that will be familiar to just about everybody here. We, we use the scripture when we're talking about the, the total depravity of man. But Paul says something about worship in this verse or in this scripture. In Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 22, he writes, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So even though the heathen worships the wrong God, he still has it in his heart that he needs to worship. Now, we could talk about that misapplication of of worship among the heathens, and and we might think, well, well, we understand that. I mean, the heathen hasn't been taught the true God, so, so surely he doesn't know how to worship God in the right way. The heathen is yet to hear the gospel, so how does he know how to worship God? Well, we can think of it that way. But we need to learn that it's not only the heathens that have the wrong idea about worship. I mean, there are many people who claim to know the true God, and yet they don't know the proper ways and means of worship. Well, that was the case of the woman at the well. She professed to to know God. Now, she wasn't worshiping a heathen God. In fact, she was worshiping Jehovah God, but she wasn't worshiping God in the right way. And folks, I'm afraid that we see this across the face of modern Christianity today. And we really do need someone to communicate to us what is the genuine form of worship. Now, thank the Lord, he's given us a book that explains all of this, so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. So as we begin the message this evening, uh, the first thing that we need to do is define worship. What is it exactly that we mean by worship? Well, let's give this definition. Worship is setting your mind's attention and heart's affection in the Lord, praising him for who he is and what he has done for you all the time. And I want you to notice that last little phrase there, all the time. That's a fairly simple uh, concept for us to grasp. And if you'll listen very closely, I'm going to explain to you what it means. It means all the time. That's exactly what it means. The criterion, though, all the time to worship God, that's really a very difficult thing for us to master. I mean, even when we're at times and when we're in places where it ought to be easy for us to worship, we, in fact, find that it's not so easy to worship. I mean, I'm almost afraid to ask you to raise your hand tonight. And and, uh, if I were to ask you, how many of you are thinking about something else besides what I'm talking about? Maybe somebody, I'm sure, could raise their hand and say, well, no, my mind's wandered off. I'm really not thinking, and I don't have my heart's affection, my mind's attention, all placed uh, upon the Word of God. So right in the middle of preaching, in a place where we know that we should worship God by listening to the Word of God, our minds can wander off. I mean, how many of of us do this? We know we we have a problem with paying attention uh, as the word is being preached. And so we're thinking about something that's going to happen later tonight. Or maybe we're thinking about a problem that we have at work, something that we have to tackle when we get there. And our minds are not completely focused upon what's going on here in the pulpit. How many of you have ever found that to be true in the middle of your Bible reading? 
Here you are, you you sit down, you pick up your Bible, you read two or three verses, and your intent is to read this whole chapter, and so you do. But you get down to the end of the chapter, and you've completely forgotten, or you don't have any idea what you just read. Why is that? Because your mind has wandered off, you haven't worshipped God properly, and so you haven't given Him all of your attention. Let me give you another comparison here. How many of you have ever done this? You've been driving along somewhere, and one of two things things happen. Either you wander completely off course and you end up someplace where you're not supposed to be. Or number two, you do arrive at the right destination, but you don't remember anything in between. I've done that before. I mean, I've been driving along and I get where I'm going. I couldn't tell you a thing that I saw along the way or anything that happened in between. Now, when we think about it like that, that in the ordinary, everyday things of life, that we can't keep our mind's attention on what we're doing, Just think what it's like in our spiritual life when we have the added thing here of an adversary. We have someone who's determined that we're not going to pay attention to what we're doing. Of course, we all know who that is. That's Satan, the devil. He's trying to keep us from listening to God's word and and from reading God's word. So the reason that your mind wanders off from the preaching of God's word and you don't have all your attention on the Lord is because of that adversary that we have. Now, here's the way that the devil works. If he fails in his attempt to keep you from going to church, and if he fails in his attempt to keep you from from, uh, reading the Bible, if he loses that battle, then what Satan does, he just starts the battle up on another front. And so he just waits to get to church, and he steers your mind away from the preaching of the Word of God, or when you're reading your Bible, he steers your mind away from that. And that's why worship is sometimes so difficult for us to do. Now, this evening, I want to ask you some questions as we discover what the Scriptures have to say about worship. The first question is, are you prepared to worship? Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, as we read that scripture, I want you to know that God has a particular person in mind for worship. And this is a person who's prepared in a very particular way. Now, the people that Peter's writing to here are Jewish Christians. And yet, the message that he gives is certainly for all of us that are here tonight. All of us can relate to what Peter's saying. But particularly, these people, as they listen to what Peter has to say here, there's some words in this passage that they could relate to. Peter uses words like stones, priesthood, sacrifices, and those are words that mean something to those Jewish Christians. And the reason they mean something is because they hearken back to their spiritual training. They've heard these things before. So they could relate to what Peter is saying because they knew something about the background of these particular words. Now, I'm going to return to that in just a moment. But they were prepared by their knowledge of certain things. And for us tonight, there are some things that we need to know to be prepared for our worship. Now, chief among all things that we need to know to worship is Jesus Christ. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And if you don't know Christ, then it would be impossible for you to worship God the Father in the right way. Remember what Jesus said to the woman of the well? We read it a moment ago. He says, ye worship, ye know not what. And the reason that he said that was because here he's talking to a woman who's worried about worshiping God in Mount Gerizim or whether you're supposed to worship God at Jerusalem. And Jesus is telling her, you're missing the whole point here right up front. You can't worship properly because you don't know me. 
And that's why he introduced himself to her and told her that he was that living water. She had to worship him before she could worship God truly. Now, if we go back to this, uh, this uh, passage in, in, in 1 Peter, where Peter's talking here about this, he says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up into a spiritual house. Let's talk about that a moment. Stones. He mentions lively stones. Now, stones are a very important thing in the Scripture. In fact, it would be profitable for you sometime just to look up the word stones in the Bible and see how God relates things to certain types of stones. But right now, I want to call your attention to a particular set of stones that we find in the book of Joshua. I want you to turn there for just a minute. Joshua chapter 4, and keep your finger in John because you're going to need that. But we go back here to to Joshua chapter 4. This is right after the children of Israel has crossed the Jordan. They're ready to possess the promised land. And here we find in verse number 1 of chapter 4, And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe of man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night." Now, let me stop there for just a moment. What he's telling them to do, they just crossed over the Jordan. Now, he says, you choose out 12 men, and I want you to go down into the Jordan River, and those stones that you walked on that bore you up as you crossed the river, I want you to pick up 12 of those stones, carry them outside of the river, and I want you to put them in a particular place. Verse number 4. Then Joshua called the 12 men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe of man, and Joshua said unto them, pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. Now pay close attention to verses 6 and 7 that this may be a sign among you that when your children ask their fathers in time to come saying what mean ye by these stones then ye shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters were cut off. And these stones, these stones shall be a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. So Joshua said, there are some things that you need to know. There are some things that I want you to remember. And so he's saying, you can't worship God. I mean, the whole context here is we cannot worship God until we know who God is and what God has done. Now here, Joshua hearkens them back to the the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. God stopped the waters, so they crossed over on the dry ground. And now to commemorate that, he says, bring those stones, put them here, and this will be a memorial for you. And so what they're doing here, they're remembering who God is, the power that God has, and what God has done for them. So first, in preparation for worship, we've got to know who God is. Now, Peter says, lively stones. And literally, of course, that means living stones. The children of Israel put these stones on the other side of Jordan as a remembrance of what what has happened. But Peter puts this into the present tense. And he says, you as lively stones, you're to relate to what God has done for you. We're living stones. And what we are is a testimony to the living things, the living God who's done certain miracles in our own lives. Now, here's something that we need to understand, that we are living stones for God, and that means that as a testimony, our lives are being read every day. 
Fathers, your children are reading your life. They're, they're seeing what kind of man that you are. Mothers, those little babies that you hold in your hand and you lead around your house, you're teaching them something, and those children are learning something from you. They're a, you're a testimony to them. Businessmen, where you work, those who work underneath of you, they're watching your life to see what you do, and your life is a testimony to them. As a Christian, you are a living stone that people are looking at. So first and foremost here, we've got to realize the testimony that we have and understand that our living for God is in light of the fact of what God has done for us, what a great God is, what God has done for us. So we, wor- we worship him as living stones. Now here's something else that Peter says in the ninth verse of First Peter 2. He says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, do you know the word that stands out most in that ninth verse? It's the word peculiar. God says that you are a peculiar people. Has anybody ever called you peculiar? Now, I look at some of you tonight, and yeah, some of you are quite peculiar. It's scary sometimes. Some of you are a little bit strange. But peculiar people, we don't like to be called peculiar, do we? I mean, if I say something, you know, that fellow over there, Brother Randy right there, he's a pretty peculiar guy. Well, that's really not a compliment most of the time. But if somebody says to me as a Christian, well, you're a peculiar person, I don't mind that too much. If they say, I started to say that old guy up there, but I'm going to say that handsome, good-looking fellow up there, I mean, he's peculiar, He doesn't act like other people act. He doesn't dress like other people dress. He doesn't talk like other people talk. He's a very peculiar person. I don't mind that at all. Because that's exactly what God says we're to be. Peculiar people. Now, preparation for worship means that we have to be, folks, just a little bit peculiar for Jesus. James told us that pure religion before God is to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So if you're going to worship God in the right way, that's something that you have to keep in mind. Now let's go into the second question here. Do you know the persons of worship? Let's go back to John chapter 4. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Who are the persons of worship? Well, if you want to, you can probably fill out all three of these blanks right now because you know the answer to this. Who are the persons of worship? Well, number one is God the Father. God the Father is a person of worship. Now, back in Romans chapter 1, we saw there how confused that the heathens were about who they're supposed to worship. They were worshiping the wrong thing. Paul says they worship the creature rather than the creator. Now, I find something that's, that's, that's happening in, in the Christian world today, put it in quotes, the creature is worshipped more than God the creator. You can go into some churches, and this will be evident to you. Go into the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, and you'll find idols everywhere around you. They've made idols of the creature in order to worship those idols. 
But folks, it's not just the graven images that we're talking about here because many uh, 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 Christian denominations have come to the place where they actually worship their manner of worship. They worship the traditions that they have. I mean, they worship the ceremonies that they have. And the ceremonies actually become more important to them. The rituals are more important than what those things are supposed to represent. But the Bible tells us the only thing we're to worship is God. Worship what he's done for us and remember who he is. Now we find much of Christianity spends time worshiping man rather than God. I mean, all that you hear today is, is the free will doctrine, the free will of man. All you hear is that God is, is not able to interfere with the affairs of my life, that salvation itself is a me decision. I make all the decisions and God has nothing to do with it. But I want to tell you something, God's still sovereign. God's still in control of things. He's never relinquished his power. In fact, the Bible says all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say, what doest thou? So the God that I worship still makes all of the decisions. God still controls the creature. And he hasn't surrendered that power. And we know that God's still saving souls. And God does it not by my power, not by my influence or anything that I do. God saves people by his power. And you know why? Because salvation is a matter of the heart. I can't change the heart. There's no preacher that can change a person's heart. That has to be in the hands of God himself. So our salvation is owed to nothing more and nothing less than the grace and mercy of Almighty God. He is completely in control. Now, we've got to get that right. I mean, that's something that people need to understand to worship God in the right way. Worship the right person, not what I've done, but what God has done. And there's so many people that completely miss that. Who else is to be worshipped? Well, God the Son is to be worshipped. I want you to turn now to the ninth chapter of John. John chapter 9, and this, uh, this should be familiar territory for everyone. Uh, here, Jesus has just healed the man at the pool of Siloam, the blind man. And I want to pick up the story here right after the Pharisees have come and spoken to this blind man. And they ask him, how did you get healed? And they didn't like the answer that he gave. When he told them that Jesus is the one who healed them and all the other things, I don't have time to read it all, but, but uh, they weren't too happy with his answers. They didn't like what he said, and so they threw him out of the synagogue. Now, we're going to pick up the reading here at verse number 35. John 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast both seen him, And he it is that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And listen, and he worshipped him. So Jesus is a person of worship. Well, I could spend hours tonight talking to you about why, why Jesus is worthy of worship. The central theme of the entire word of God is Jesus Christ. I mean, the whole story is about what Jesus came in the world to do for us. We could talk all night about who Jesus is. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us that he's better than the angels. It says he's better than Moses. He's better than the law. In the book of Revelation, it tells us he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It tells us he was the one who was dead and yet's alive forevermore. Jesus is a person to be worshipped. Now, I said earlier, you have to know Christ to know how to worship. And if you don't know him, the Bible doesn't make sense. I mean, knowledge of Christ is essential for worship. 
What does the Scripture say? John wrote in John 1, verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. And that's the reason why the heathen can't worship God. It's the reason why a Buddhist could never worship God rightly. It's why a Muslim can never worship God. And sadly, we have to say it's why the Jews today who still reject Jesus Christ cannot worship God. Because you have to come through the person of Jesus Christ. To genuinely worship God, you have to know the Son of God. Now, the third person is God the Spirit. God the Spirit is a person of worship. Romans chapter 8 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Right here, I think there's more confusion among Christian people than probably any other doctrine that we have in the Word of God today. And this is the confusion about how to worship the Holy Spirit. Now, first of all, we need to understand this. The Holy Spirit is God. Numerous times in the Scripture, the Holy Spirit is mentioned right along with God the Father and God the Son. So I'm not going to spend uh, time tonight uh, giving you proofs about the deity of the Spirit. We understand this, and I certainly do believe that God is a trinity. The Bible teaches the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't understand all about the trinity. I mean, it's a mystery that I don't understand. I mean, I've heard people try to explain it. I've heard different explanations of what you can compare the Trinity to, but I've come to the conclusion, as have many others, that our minds simply cannot understand this. Our finite understanding cannot grasp what the Trinity's all about. Now, we get a glimpse of it. There are some parts of it, a little bit that we can can understand. God's shown us some things, but we can't fully explain this mystery. All that I know is the Bible teaches that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one. They're one in essence. They're one in existence. They're one in attributes. They are all one God and yet three distinct persons. I don't know how that works. I confess you, I really don't understand it, but I believe that it's true. Now, having said that, most of the time, the Holy Spirit is not being worshiped in spirit and in truth. Now, the scriptures tell us exactly what the Holy Spirit does and how he's recognized And most people do not really recognize the Holy Spirit in the right way. One thing the Bible tells us is that the Holy Spirit never seeks to glorify himself. And so the Holy Spirit does not cause people to speak in gobbledygook. The Holy Spirit doesn't cause people to bark like dogs. He doesn't cause them to roll around the floor. He doesn't knock people down when some preacher blows on them. He doesn't make people laugh uncontrollably when they receive the Spirit. How many of you have heard about that? Oh, yeah. Somebody said, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. You, you, you haven't done it, have you? You know, there's some, there are some groups that, that think, you know, they, they get into this uncontrollable laughter. And they say that's the Holy Spirit that's come upon them. That has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here to convict and convince the world of sin. And what the Holy Spirit does is to point us to Jesus Christ, the only hope of our salvation. Here's what Jesus says in John 16. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Listen, for he shall not speak of himself. 
It's not our job to magnify the Spirit. The Spirit magnifies Jesus Christ. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. Now, those verses show us that the Holy Spirit proceeds from God. His work is very specialized. It's specified very clearly what he's supposed to do. And anyone that falsely takes the Holy Spirit out of that specialized work that the Bible says that he has and makes the Holy Spirit the author of confusion, that's the way so many people do. If they do that, then they make the Holy Spirit a mockery. He becomes a joke. And so whenever people dishonor the work of the Holy Spirit by worshiping in the wrong way, they're dishonoring God. So the Holy Spirit is a person of worship, but he has to also be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Now we go on to the third question. Do you have the power for worship? Listen to Philippians 3 verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What do I learn from this verse? I learn that the power that enables me to worship God does not come from within me. I have no confidence in the flesh. I have no confidence that the flesh can begin my worship. I have no confidence that it can sustain my worship. My confidence is placed only in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a far thought from most of Christianity today. Today's Christianity teaches that our sufficiency is in our flesh. That's... What I was talking about a moment ago, when we talk about people worshiping at the altar of free will. I mean, it's all about me. The free will dogma actually says that you're good enough yourself. You can do it by yourself. You're not totally sinful. That really, when, when Adam fell, he didn't debilitate man in such a way that he cannot come to God just as he is. That he comes on his own. He doesn't need any help from God whatsoever. I can just come of my own sufficiency, of my own self, and I can receive whatever God has to give me. That's a lie. And it's the biggest lie that was ever taught. Man is totally depraved. He has no thought. He has no will. He has no action that will ever bring him to God on his own. What does John 1.13 say? Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So I don't have any confidence in my flesh. I can't place confidence there because I know this. My flesh is up to no good. Now, if someone like the Apostle Paul that says, says, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, then I certainly know that me, me, puny little old me, I'm nothing like the Apostle Paul. Surely nothing in my flesh can do anything good. My sufficiency is all in Christ. And so I can't do anything concerning spiritual matters unless Christ helps me with that. He's the one who gives me the ability, the confidence, and the power to do everything that God wants me to do. And, most importantly, what we're talking about tonight, he's the one who gives us that ability to worship God. So it's all reliant upon Jesus. Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things. How? Through me? No. Through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So I can't do anything by myself. Everything comes through Christ. Christ infuses That power for genuine worship. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's Paul who wrote that as well. The real power for genuine worship comes from Christ. Question number four. Do you know the place to worship? Jesus and the Samaritan woman were discussing the place of worship. She says, 
our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And she's speaking about Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, folks, I would submit to you tonight that the place to worship God is not here on earth. And that might surprise you to hear me say that. You mean we don't worship God here on earth? Well, what I'm saying is that the place to worship God is not a physical place like Rona Park, California. It's not in the Berean Baptist Church, not in this physical location. Now, we can begin worship here, but our worship, when we're truly worshiping God, it takes us to another place, and that place is not in this world. Where does the worship of God take place? It takes place at the throne of God. Now, Hebrews says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now, here's the, one of the important things. There's so many things about the uh, death of Christ that are important. But when Jesus died, he opened up the way for every person into the throne room of God. The example that we have in Scripture is the tabernacle and the temple. And in the tabernacle and also in the temple, there was a veil that hung between two compartments there. We've studied this before, but that veil separated these two compartments. On one side is the Holy of Holies. On the other side is the holy place. The priest could come in from the holy place one time per year, and he pushed the veil aside, and he went into the Holy of Holies. And there he took the blood of the sacrifice, and he sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and that sprinkling of the blood was for the sins of the people. And the high priest was the only one who could go behind that veil, and he only did that one time per year. But the Bible teaches us that when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the veil of the temple was torn in two. And so the way into the holiest of holies was opened up. And the significance of that is that Jesus Christ has opened it up so that every person who trusts him is a believer priest. Forget about this idea that people have that there's a certain priest who does things for you. The Bible says if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest to God. And this way is opened up to the throne of God for everyone who is a believer. So any place that you worship God in spirit and in truth is a place of worship. Your home could be a place of worship because right there you can see into the throne of God. This church is a place of worship because from here we can access the throne of God. The park down the street, driving in your car down the road, any time that you worship God in spirit and truth, you have a portal into the throne room of God. And so there, that's where you worship God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I don't have to wait till Sunday to worship God. I can go right now wherever I am and I have access to God's throne. The, the place of worship is not in this world. It's at the throne of God in heaven. And we have access to it because of Jesus Christ. Boy, that's a wonderful thought. Now, finally, let's, let's talk about this. And we can't forget this. And, and you know the answer to this question before I even ask it. You already know what I believe. So you know the answer to the question. Do you know the purpose of worship? And I think anybody who's been attending Brian Baptist Church for very long, you know the purpose of worship. What is that? To glorify God. The purpose of worship is to glorify God. Let me give you three quick reminders and we'll be done with the sermon tonight. Number one, letter A on your listening sheet, be a living sacrifice. How do you worship God? How do you glorify him? Be a living sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
So you've got to start right there, sacrificing all that I am to God. The thought here is that God has done all for me. Can I do less for him? Jesus was willing to give his life for me. Won't I sacrifice myself for him? Be a living sacrifice. Number two, letter B on your listening sheet. Be a vessel of praise. Psalm 50, verse 23 says, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Do you know what the word praise means? The word praise means extolling or the exaltation of a deity, a ruler, or a hero. Doesn't that fit God? He's deity, he's my ruler, and folks, he's my hero. That fits God all the way around. Extolling, praising, to him belongs all the honor and praise. So that's how we glorify God. Third way, be a thankful person. Psalm one sixteen seventeen. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. So those three things, they're acts of worship. Here's our purpose. God has saved us for this. To glorify God. So we live a life that's pleasing to God. We live that life in daily sacrifice to him. We praise him for who he is and what he's done. And that will enable us to worship God in the right way. Do you know how to worship God? Worship is setting your mind's attention. Let's go back and read that together. Look at the beginning of your lesson sheet. Read it with me tonight. Worship is setting your mind's attention and heart's affection in the Lord, praising him for who he is and what he has done for you all the time. Keep that in mind and you'll know how to worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the lesson we learned tonight. Lord, we want to worship you and we want to do it in the right way. First and foremost, we understand that the only way that we can come to you is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we praise you for what he's done for us. We praise you for sending him into the world to die for our sins. And now, Lord, may we understand that you demand worship. That's already innate within our being that we ought to worship. And now we need to know how to worship in the right way. Would you speak to the hearts of these folks tonight? Would you show them the right way to worship? May we have our minds, attention, and our hearts affection on you all the time. And we know, Lord, that you'll bless us for that. And we praise you that we're your children. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's please stand.